every book should have a tongue glove mentioned in it, whether or not it is science fiction. Yeah. I do. I'm never reading it um, again. Thanks, Liz. I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratt Chat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books or short stories with a special guest. This month we're reading, uh, buckle in, I'm going to try and do this, hashtag if bug plus world slash enough plus time, um, which is basically like a an homage to Philip K. Dick in my opinion. So, you know, it has big Philip K. Dick energy. <laughs> And our guest is best-selling speculative fiction author and musician, Sean Williams. Welcome, Sean. Thanks, guys. It's great to be here. It's hard to take a... I've still got a smile on my face after the, the big Philip K. Dick energy, which is not how I expected this podcast to start. Uh, look, <laughs> I should have known. I'm sorry, but you're welcome also. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And I, I actually... I hadn't thought about the fact that I had given you the job of reading out the title, Liz, and I am... I apologise. Well, how that. did I do? Like, how would you say it? How would um, both of you... Because that's what I meant to ask, how both of you would say it, and then we can go back to the introduction. Do you want to have a go first, Sean? Well, I would just say if death debug plus world slash enough and time, but there are so many different ways to say it. What would you say then? I would say pretty much the same. I would say if death debug... I would leave out the hash, but that's because I know where that comes from. <laughs> Although it's weird, we'll get onto this. Let's not get into the discussion too early. Sean, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Oh, my absolute pleasure. You have been on a podcast with me before, but it's been a long time now. Oh, yeah. We were on live on stage once before. Yeah, the way back. Fringe, a very long time ago. That's nine years ago. Can you believe it? Um, no, I for- refuse to believe it. <laughs> For Splendid Chats. Do you, I mean, I keep thinking about this because next year is the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who and that podcast, which kind of is, you know, the origin of this one in a way, that means that was nearly 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah, but that was great. You were our first. We, we had these grand plans. I don't know if I ever told you this. So Splendid Chats, if, listener, if you haven't listened to it, this was a Doctor Who podcast where we did a live show every month discussing one of the, at the time, 11 Doctors <laughs> and a theme across all Doctor Who. It was a lot of fun. And our original plan was that we wouldn't just do it in Melbourne. We'd go all over Australia. And we tried that for our third episode in March. We went to Adelaide for the Adelaide Fringe, uh, or Mad March, as it's called, because everything in Adelaide happens in March. Oh, yeah. The Uh, only month that exists. Yeah. And we had Sean as one of our wonderful guests. And it was great, but very expensive. (laughs) And nobody, because all our fans- I'm not expensive. Let me just make it clear. I'm not expensive. I'm cheap. (laughs) But we had to fly like three of us over there and put us up in another city. And all of our fans who knew who we were were in Melbourne. So no one came, not no one, but very few people compared to the audiences we had in Melbourne. And that was what sort of made us realize we can't go anywhere (laughs) except Melbourne. Uh, But it was our one one, uh, interstate trip. Apart from one special episode towards the end, so it was it was very special. It was, special it was very for me hot. Too. Yeah, it was very hot, 
And we had my very old friend Kathy Adamek on stage. Yes, who was also she, great. Yes, she was wonderful, despite not being a huge Doctor Who fan, but she'd thrown up with it a bit. No, but she nailed it. It was always good. Like, I feel like that's true on this podcast too. It's really nice when we get someone who has never read a Pratchett before and get them to read something standalone and get that sort of, I'm fresh to this, what is this all about kind of reception. But that's not you, Sean. You've read Pratchett before. Oh, I've been reading Pratchett since uh, since I was quite young. I might not have been a teenager, but in my early 20s. I'm 55 now, so I've been reading Pratchett for at least 30 years. And... Yeah. um right back uh, in the early Discworld novels. In fact, I what's the novel that's sort of like a Discworld novel but a science fiction? Strata. Strata. I remember Strata uh, as a young person. That was one of my first Pratchett novels. And then I hit Discworld and it was like, whoa, this is this whole idea expanded in such a brilliant, brilliant way. Mm-hmm. And uh, I used to queue up at a science fiction bookstore called Dragon's Lair here and I'd be there waiting for the next Pratchett book to come out in hardback. So I've got a, a slew of the hardback Pratchett's downstairs that I've read and read and read and read. Just loved his work. Big fan. But I'm not as familiar with his short story, so I'm really pleased you gave me a short story to read. That's hmm. that's really exciting. Yeah. Have you have you read this one before? No, I have not. Oh. I came to it with fresh eyes. New Pratchett. This is one of the reasons I'm so glad we decided to do the short stories they are unfamiliar to a lot of people. I mean, we because we're also doing all these other books and a lot of people have only read the Discworld, I mean, there's that too. But, yeah, the short stories, there's some gold in there and there's most of them I haven't read before, so they're all, they're all fresh to me. I was pleased this story was first published about the time I started reading Pratchett, so that was 32 years ago. So this story is as old as my love for Pratchett <laughs> and I thought that was really appropriate. I'm sorry, because I was like going to be like, oh, actually, the story was written in 1990, so that was 10 years ago, and then I did <laughs> I wish. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, Liz, have, have you read this one before? No, this is my first time reading this one, and I absolutely loved it. Like, I know we're going to get into it, but um, most of the short stories I haven't read before, so whenever we do one, there's a huge chance that it's like me going in not knowing anything about it. I can't remember why we chose this one specifically. Was it just because that did you already know what it was about or was it the amazing title that I still can't say even though you've both said it seamlessly? But um yeah, this is again like one of those moments with um the Johnny Cemetery book where I'm like, "Oh, this is one that's catering to some of my very specific interests though I don't know like tons of computer things." in terms of the science fiction and as I mentioned like the Philip K Dick sort of energy of it. I feel very catered to, and it's also a very different vibe for, for Terry Pratchett. Like, he's got a whole new voice going on, but, yeah, well, I'll save that for for the main discussion, but mm. haven't read it before to answer your question, but I'm very glad I have now, and it's one that I know I'm going to revisit. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, well, I can't remember how we chose this, actually. I think my maybe it was your dis- – maybe maybe it was you? I don't remember, but uh, I, I did kind of know on some level – you would dig this because <laughs> you are a big Philip K. Dick fan, right? Yeah. So yeah. I'm I'm ready for more like Dick's World novels. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, that's great. Very no, good. Um, terrible. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I think we're primed. Why don't we get into the discussion of this story? And we'll begin as we do with our short story episodes by reading Pratchett's notes from the collection. This is from A Blink of the Screen. This was published in 1990 in the anthology Digital Dreams, edited by Dave Barrett. 
I was tempted to update this. After all, it's about virtual reality. <laughs> remember that, everybody? I am so old, I can remember virtual reality. But what's the point? Besides, it would be cheating. I just like the idea of an amiable repairman, not very bright, but good with machines, padding the streets of a quiet, dull, sleeping world. Things are breaking down, knowledge is draining away, and he's driving his van around the sleeping streets, helping people dream. Now, many years later, it appears rather chilly and maybe quite close to home. First thing, I don't think he's amiable and I do think he's very bright. So I feel like that's the other way around. <laughs> There's yeah. definitely a sinister edge to this character. Yeah. yeah Dar- his name is Darren as well, which is, uh, I mean, it's a... <laughs> oh, well then, <laughs> obviously. Well, I mean, that's no, no look, uh, apologies to all the Darrens that I know out they there. They just all but signed out right now. It yeah. is. Lost a certain percentage of your listenership. They're gone. <laughs> <laughs> it is a name in Australian culture, at least, that often gets pulled out as like, Darren! Like, the, you know, you see it shouted in advertising and stuff like that. What, the Ferals. Yeah. Which one was Darren in the Ferals? He was the amiable dog. Like the, the red, red dog. That's like right. He's a really nice dingo, one. isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. I've forgotten about him. Yeah, so there's... <laughs> it's an interesting name for him. Look, we'll get into his character because we do get into his head. Like, Pratchett does not write in first person a lot except in short stories where he seems to really love it. He's really into it. In fact, like, I think like this is the third of his short stories that we've covered that's written in the first person. I feel like with his short stories, like, and I can't speak to his motivation, but it feels like often he is reveling in the opportunity to experiment or to do something quite different because he would have to spend a lot of time writing in the Discworld voice, thinking through that world. And so, like, in the ones we've read, they, in subject matter, are often very varied. He likes playing with genre. Like, he'll go, like, for a full horror thing, but also humorous, like, because it's like Christmas cards come to life. Um, this one, it feels like he's going really science fiction rather than fantasy and an entirely different kind of voice to what we're used to. Because as soon as we started it, like from the first sentence, I was like, oh, this does not feel like something that Terry Pratchett has written. As you go through it, there's like little throwaway comments, like the jokes that go through that you're like, you can absolutely see that it's him and his voice. But initially I was like, oh, he's taking a step back and sort of showing us what else he likes and is interested in and is capable of outside of the thing that most of us know and love already. Mm. As a writer, I think first person is tricky for some writers. It's, it's really tricky for me. I, it took me 50 novels before I published one in first person because it's just so hard. Uh, but I wrote lots of short stories in first person because, as you say, Liz, it's great to experiment with styles and voices and, and viewpoints and so on and so forth. And I don't mean to suggest that Terry Pratchett wasn't good enough to do a first person novel. He would totally have rocked it, you know. But um, but it is harder and it maybe it just didn't feel natural and... Um, Mm. Um, it's harder to sustain. But uh, but I also think there was a reason why he chose first person for this story, a specific reason uh, mm. that perhaps we'll come to later. Yeah. This I should I just want to put this in context for his career too. This was one of this was a big year for him, so it's still quite early on in his novel writing career. This was in nineteen ninety when he published five books. Like it was one of his biggest years, including Good Omens was that year. Two of the Bromeliad books were that same year. Mm. Moving Pictures came out around the same time as this story. Oh, I might have that wrong, but I, th- I think it was towards the end of the year. And um, Moving Pictures was in November 1990. So, it was, a, it was a huge year for him. And it's an interesting anthology as well. I confess, I looked at the list of authors and there were only a few that I recognized. Neil Gaiman is in there writing a poem. And who was the Diana Wynne-Jones. Diana Wynne-Jones, favourite of this podcast. 
was also in there. Did you get a chance to look at that list, Sean? Did you recognise any of those other names or Liz? No, I didn't. I'm going to have a look right now. I, I would uh, like to take a quick step back while we're looking that up, though, um, where you said like a huge year for him, five books or whatnot. I think that's really interesting that, and I'm sorry that this is a name you're going to keep hearing me say throughout this episode, that he's entering his Philip K. Dick era because like, that's like a normal amount of books for Philip K. Dick to release <laughs> in a year. True. Yeah. There are a bunch of names in here that are familiar. Some of them are good old boys like Dave Langford, who's a very funny writer, a wonderful writer. Storm Constantine. Storm Constantine is a Oh, yes, I do. I forgot she was in there. Yep. Ian MacDonald uh, is a, a great science fiction writer. Um, uh, there's some really big names. Keith Roberts, Andy Sawyer, um, Joe Saxton, Anne Gay. There's some, there's, there's some good names in this. And this is a really solid collection. Yeah. Um, Mm. I'm glad you know, because I sort of was looking at that list of names going, I'm sure some of these people are famous. And they I just don't know. They certainly were. Them. This was a huge collection for 1990, looking at those yeah. names. Yeah. And it's like, it's got a very 1990 cover. We'll share a link to where you can see the cover list now. It's, it's quite, it's, yeah, you, I can imagine seeing it on the shelf of the bookshop where I worked when I was, you know, finishing <laughs> high school. Yeah, full on. But great. And it's, there's a, I forget which one it is, but in front of one of the short stories in the A Blink of the Screen collection, he does say every short story I write is like drawing blood. That's why I don't write very many of them. And I'm like, this is in a book where there's like 50 of them, like you've written heaps, but he does seem to space them out. He doesn't like write one every year or anything like that. Yeah. No, like the way you write a short story is you get your idea, you write it, you go, why am I a terrible writer? Why has anyone ever read any of my work? Um, what am I doing? Take my keyboard away. Um, then you go live your life for a few months. You come back and you go, actually, this is okay and I can fix this. Hmm. His editor <laughs> hits you up at a bar and says, hey, Terry, I need someone to fill out this collection. If your name is not on it, I can't sell it. Do me a favor. Come on, come on. Here's a whiskey. Just say yes. And you say yes. And then six months later, the editor emails you and said, Terry, where's that story? I needed it last week. And you go, oh, no. And you hammer it out in a day. And you hope for the best. And then you fix it in post. <laughs> Those so. stories are also great. I also yeah. have produced some of my favorite things that way. Not um, where someone's like, I need your name to sell an anthology, but where you're writing it in one day. Mm-hmm. I did. <laughs> I, I, I was quite tickled to see Neil Gaiman's name in there as well. He's written a poem called Virus, which seems like a very Neil thing to do. But he was not well known as a prose writer at the time. Same year as Good Omens, so it's the first time a novel that he'd written had come out. So until then, he was still very much mostly known for his comic book work and before that as a journalist. So that was fun to see them sort of... There's a part of me that's like, and I don't know, this is pure speculation, listener. I have no idea if this is true, but I do wonder if Terry was like, you know who you should get? You should get Neil Gaiman. And they're like, but he's a comic book writer. He's like, he'll write something. It'll be good. (laughs) He wrote a bunch of great short stories around then. I remember he was guest at an Adelaide science fiction convention in 91, and I only know that because I'd submitted a short story to the short story competition, which was a very Philip K. Dickey kind of short story, and I won it, and he presented me the award. And I was too strung out and afraid to actually attend the convention except to turn up to pick up the award. So I was the shivering little 24-year-old. But I arrived while Neil was reading a, a story from... Uh, his collection that was out that year. It was the one about the troll living under the bridge. And I was listening to this this madman in black reading this beautiful story. And uh, and to my mind, he will always be a brilliant short story writer, mm. better than anything else, because probably because of that first experience of seeing him read it live. Um, so he was certainly known as a short story writer back then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. See, that's great. I've read that story, but only in its comic book adaptation. 
So I didn't even know it was a short story before that. But now I'm like, oh, that story is really good. You know, um, it's possible that I've mixed up stories. So it might be a listener out there tapping away already to send in an email saying, Williams is full of shit. He doesn't know what he's talking about. So let me just qualify that it was over 30 years ago. That's <laughs> But fine. my memory in my simulation is absolutely clear. We are self-correcting, Sean. I will look it up and it will be in the episode notes. Uh <laughs> Which I always title Notes and Errata because I do correct myself as well when I get things wrong. Um, but yeah, so, but that's the context of the time and the book in which this story was published. It's been collected a few times. So, uh, we've, we're reading it in a blink of the screen, but it's also been collected in uh, once more with footnotes and the German collection, which we will come back to when we get to the questions because there's something quite extraordinary going on in that German collection. Uh, we'll get to we'll it. Get to we'll, we'll come back to it. And it'll be amazing. Anyway, the story itself. Yes, it opens with this guy, Darren. We don't know. I shouldn't call him this guy, Darren. He's he's got a full name. His name's Darren Thompson. It's a very, it's a very regular guy name, which I think is, you know, purposeful choice. It's a very Australian regular guy name. He's Darren. Mm. He's Dazza Tomo, basically. (laughs) Yeah. He does speak like his internal monologue, even from that first line. I think you were saying that even from the first line, it seems quite different, Liz. But when he says, like, you know, never could stand the idea of machines and people, it's not proper. And then next paragraph, he says, don't tell me that's right. I mean, it's got a very, like, our Shazza says kind of energy to it. Yeah. To me, it had the kind of energy of, like, you're just minding your own business on the bus, doing something, and the person next to you is like, oh, yeah, I disapprove of that, and then the long story, and you can't leave because you're trying to get home. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's his whole character, but the first line just had that, I've got a strong opinion on this thing, and it's unshakable, and I will share it with you, which is, like, that's a strong opening. Yes. Mm. This does bring me to a question I have about first-person short stories is that, and I don't write prose very often, I usually am writing scripts, but um, I don't write in first-person a lot, and partly it's because I get too hung up on who is this person talking to? Like, what? why is this in first-person? Like, mm-hmm. is this just their thoughts? But he definitely seems to be addressing someone else because he keeps saying things like, you can't tell me that's right, blah, 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 which I guess is something and you he have. And in- he stops and actually he stops and directly addresses the reader when he says, you're smart. You know what I'm talking about. You know where I'm going. You know, it yeah. interrupts his own narrative to address whoever he's talking to. Yeah, it's nice. And that's sort of a feature, like in Once in Future, the, the King Arthur time travel story, that he, there's a little bit of that as well. Like, he might be leaving notes for himself, like recording a journal, but he also does seem to be speaking with someone else listening to him in mind in that same way. Ben, do you have an inner monologue? Um, yeah, I do. Like, do you have a voice narrating things? A little bit. But it's like, mine's a bit of an actor in a monologue in the sense that it's like I've scripted it for me to say. Like, it feels that, I don't know if that's too meta. And it doesn't always feel like that. But sometimes it's like a rehearsing a conversation. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, that sort of thing. Yeah, I was just curious about how that, like, relates to difficulty writing in first person because, like, yeah. Mm. But I would never say that in a monologue out loud is, is my point. Whereas a short story in first person is being communicated to us, the reader, and sometimes it's pretty clear that this is just somebody's thoughts, like particularly if it's written in the, you know, the sort of very present immediate tense, but this is like clearly reflecting after the fact. It's like he's saying, it's like he's on the bus home and he's telling this to someone, <laughs> but it's somebody that he knows quite well. It feels like this is not, he's not talking to a stranger. He's talking to someone. 
not who he knows quite well, because he does explain who he is, but more who he trusts. Mm. It's like he's having a drink with someone in the bar afterwards, maybe. Except they're a different class. So he says, you're right, you're clever, you've had an education. And Daz mm. has had an education. But that statement of saying, you've had an ed- education, feels like a, like they're revealing a difference in class. And mm. uh, he feels that the person he's addressing is other, a different class. Is that a sort of nod to you're the sort of person who'd buy an anthology of science fiction stories about virtual realities? Probably. <laughs> yeah. But he does like a good book, though we find out later what kind of good book that is. Yeah. But, yeah, his his job, uh, to describe more about Darren Thompson, is he's a hardware repairman, but, like, technological or electronic hardware, and he specialises in artificial reality equipment, particularly what are known as C-Gems after the flagship brand in a similar way to people call, or used to call video game consoles Ataris, even if they weren't an Atari. Mm. That's really dating me, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> they, they call them PlayStations, even if they don't really know about different brands of console. It's that sort of thing. It's a genericization. I looked it up. Yes. <laughs> we yes. show off that, that word because <laughs> it's a big one. I spelled it wrong. Which brands are very keen to avoid because once it happens, you can't trademark it anymore. Like if mm-hmm. it happened, I think, I don't think it happened to Kleenex. I think they got close because people do use Kleenex in, in the place of tissue or they used to. But I think it's happened to Google, hasn't it? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why they changed their primary business name to Alphabet, who owns Google. Yeah. Um, Taser, yeah. Escalator, think- Kerosene, Biros. Band-Aid. Yeah. Band-Aid, yes. Band-Aid, yeah. Hoover, mm. um, which I think is mentioned in the story. Mm. There's heaps, there's heaps of them. Yeah, which is, and it's a nice name, C-Gem. There's not too many things, actually, despite Terry's introduction, I didn't find there were too many things that dated this. Like, some of the specific descriptions of the technology were like, well, that's how you'd imagine it in 1990. Now we would not imagine it like that. It'd be something more like Black Mirror, right, where it's like a tiny bead that you stick in your head. But one of the things that did date it was when he's talking about the other companies that made artificial reality stuff, and he mentions Amstrad, yeah. <laughs> who, if you're not, like, 30 or older, you do not remember the name Amstrad. And probably it's a struggle if you are 30, actually. Does Hitachi still exist? Uh, they Hitachi do. Does. They do. They make microwaves and stuff, oh don't they? God, there you go. Right. They do. They don't make computers anymore, though, mm. as far as I know. But, yeah. But this is this is his deal. He he repairs other stuff too. Like he does talk about the fact that he can do washing machines and things. But he mostly does people's artificial reality gear. And he's been called to a crime scene. But it, I mean, I say that he's been called to a crime scene. That happens like seven paragraphs into the story because throughout this story, he's giving us a lot. He's just telling us about the world that he lives in. In a way that's kind of like, oh, I remember the good old days, you know, kind of reminiscing about how things have changed. He's a bit of a get-off-my-lawn kind of fellow, but he's yeah. only 38. I was shocked when we hit the description of him being only 38. He felt so much older. But maybe yeah. I think 38 is young because I'm 55. Maybe everybody else who read it at the time <laughs> when you're 38, that's ancient. How's he still even alive? Yeah, I don't know. But he jogs. He jogs, that's right. <laughs> he reads books. Uh, to put that in context, Pratchett himself was 42 years old when this was published, I think. Yeah. So, um, he's not that much younger than Pratchett, but he is a little bit younger than Pratchett. So, still curious that he's made this sound like an old person. But I I Uh, think this connects to my theory, too, 
which we'll refer oh, okay. to. We'll get to, we'll get to your thing. <laughs> I'm just dropping little hints so people know it's coming. <laughs> well, just just like in the story. Yeah. I mean, we'll come back to, but like you know, three or four paragraphs in, there's a big hint as to what's going to happen at the end. And I, when I was reading it for the first time, and I was sort of making notes, I was like, oh, that's going to come back. Yeah, so he's been called into this crime scene where someone has died. And this is not his first time doing a job like this. Someone has died inside their artificial reality machine. And the way it's described is it's like a, it's like a chair that you sit in. There's like a big headset thing. There's headphones and there's like things that go up your nose to help you smell things. And there's a, he talks about there being like a sleeve you can wear on your tongue for stimulating the, tongue the taste glove. senses. Tongue, tongue glove, yeah. Yeah, which he says seems gross, but it's better than when you, you have to put the like gel in your mouth and then you have to rinse it all out. No, no, thank you. All of it, no. Yeah, it's kind of gross. And again, you know, that's a more realistic, but still very 1990s. I'm reminded, oh, there was this video game that came out, not in the 90s, like it's, it's not that old, it's maybe only a decade old, but it was like this sort of very retro future cyberpunk game, but it was a retro future based on what we thought that would be like in the 90s. So, it's all like VCR level, like home computer technology, but then like big chunky headsets and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to have to look that up for the episode notes, but it gave me that kind of vibe. Mm. He's definitely Um, read Euromancer, hasn't he? If that was out then. And and gone, yeah, brand names, chips, tubes, let's throw it all in and a tongue glove just for the hell of it. Just to make it feel gross. Just to prove that he's thought about the idea, I guess. That was something that Bill Gibson did not mention in his book, as far as I remember. Um, Every book should have a tongue glove <laughs> mentioned in it, whether or not it is science fiction. Yeah. <laughs> I do. I'm never reading a um, book again. Thanks, Liz. If, if you don't hear about it, it's just strongly implied. Just assume all the characters have one. <laughs> I feel like you've got to rewrite all their dialogue so it sounds a bit more like Off of the Crocodile God. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Uh, I ref- I deny this reality. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going there. Sorry, it's too late. It's in your uh, head. It's oh, in your no. mouth, literally. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Uh, well, let's get away from that quickly. Anyway, yes. this guy's died, but yes, this is not his first time. He says this is quite common, and even in 1990, like there's some little snippets of Pratchett's attitude to death where. He says, look, it's not that bad a way to go, like dying in your virtual reality porn program. Like, there's a lot worse ways you could go. And you're like, that's quite a reasonable thing to say, really. But then this guy's not that old. Like, he probably He's 38. shouldn't be dead. He's 38. Um, although there's a great line. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great line when he, they open up the chair and look at him and he's just sort of a bit unkempt but not totally gross. And he's like, he looked like God would look if he was on really serious drugs <laughs> and dead, of course. Yes. And there's, there's just a, there's quite a lot of little pearls in this. So many little lines. Yes. It's great. Yeah, it's really good. But yes, that's when we find out he's, he's only 38. Uh, and they want him to check out the machine and see, is this something to do with the machine? And he talks about the fact that there's all these rumors that they can kill you, but actually that's, that really doesn't happen. Like they don't have enough sensory input to do that. They can freak you out. They can make you feel really uncomfortable. And there are viruses that do that, that he talks about a couple of times, but they can't seriously hurt you. The worst they could do is maybe give you a bit of a bruise. Except- oh, but the idea of the black market like suit that the military developed initially oh, where yeah. you can actually feel the things that you can like, cause absolutely people would go for that. Like they would be like, Oh, like how can I make my virtual reality a bit more reality? So, like, if you want to go really hardcore into your thing, you can get into, like, a fist fight with someone wearing these suits and there's actual, like, bodily harm done, presumably. Like, what was great about that is he left a lot up to implication. He gave you just enough information 
um, but didn't over-explain it, so it actually made it a lot more sinister to me. Mm. That yeah. image is really frightening, isn't it? Being beaten up by exoskeletons yeah. just to make your fantasy, whatever sick fantasy it is, real, more real. Yeah. Ugh. I think the other thing about that is Darren is so non- like, he just is like, whatever, like, I've seen it all, but then there's those couple of moments where he goes- Oh, yeah, that's not like, and that's one of the few things in the story where he's like, Oh, I don't, I've never seen that. I don't want to see that. Like, you're like, Whoa, okay. Well, from your, from your description, you've seen some wild shit. Uh, so that is really awful. I think that really sold it to me as well. But yeah, it seemed a bit of a weird case. Like, you can't find anything wrong with the machine. And not only is there not anything noticeably wrong with the machine, but there's a dude from the CGM Corporation there, like some sort of, he just refers to him as a suit. Uh, he's clearly some sort of corporate oh, guy who's absorbing. He has a mm-hmm. name. Oh, he has a name. He's the only other character named, I think, apart from the dead guy, Paul Carney. And I think oh, Carney's right. a deliberately chosen name. Like a carnival worker, con man, you know. Ah. Oh, you know, I didn't make that connection, but that's probably because my year-level coordinator when I was in high school was named Carney. Oh, really? <laughs> um, shout out to you, uh, Pat Carney, if you're listening to this. I don't think you would be, but just in case. If you Another said- tick in the this is a- Virtual reality. That's what I was saying, too. Sorry, Liz, we keep- Get out of my head. Sorry. I've slipped into your reality. Sorry. You're too attuned. It's a virus. Oh, no. (laughs) Well, you know what? I'd forgotten he had a name, and that's probably partly because he's meant to be quite a forgettable character. Like, when he's introduced, Mm. Darren says, I had noticed him before because he's one of those people you wouldn't notice if he was with you in a wardrobe. Yeah. (laughs) Great Such a good line. I'm going to stop reading outlines because I want to. I want to give other people a chance to read their favorites when we get to the end. But there's just there's some great stuff. Do you think CGM is just called that because it's a cool name? I thought it was like because it was supposed to sound like CGM, which is like computer generated something, like computer generated multiverse. Or yeah, it stands. Well, I, I understood it as standing for computer generated environments. Like it was a because he's yeah CGM. That's where I took mm. it from. But I couldn't work out where AFA mm. come from came from. Which is the it's word artificial yeah. is, but like it's just like, but the, yeah. you wouldn't have the AF, like, is it's just like the AFAs, like, yeah, <laughs> I'll have AFAs. It just reminded me of AFOL, which is the acronym for um, adult fans of Lego, <laughs> yeah, of which is like because because there's an assumption, you know, which is an acronym that's derived from the fact that people assume Lego is only for kids, but there are plenty of adults who are still into it and love, you know, making stuff with it and do extraordinary things, and so they have this uh, acronym. And it just, yeah, every time I read it, I was like, fans of like, no, that's not what it means. Because um, that's the word he uses for the technology and the people who use the technology, AFA, AFA. It's all the way through the story, uh, but it's not defined, which I think is interesting. No, I guess. You don't need to. Apart from the AFOL connection, I also feel like it's a contraction of artificial lifer. That's kind of where, like, something like that. Now that I come to think about it, that makes more sense to me. Uh, but that's kind of what I kind of gathered because yeah when i first read it too i was like that's not an obvious one i'm not sure what that means but that i think it, it makes the world feel lived in where there's a term that somebody's using with great familiarity and you're like i don't quite get that but you're not explaining it which means that's just something that you understand but from context i know what you mean do you mean lifer in the sense of confined to prison for life because that <laughs> that is great I did not mean that. Ah. I meant someone who is keen on artificial life. They're living an artificial life. But that also that also make, gives it a derogatory kind of angle. Mm. An extra layer. There's another term in the story that's not defined that I couldn't find in the internet, but I think he's just added for a sense of verisimilitude, however you pronounce that word, and that's paragorithm that, that pops mm. up in the middle of it. And I thought, well, what's that mean? And I Googled it and it doesn't appear to mean anything. 
So, bit of techno babble there. Bit of techno babble. Nothing wrong with that. Bit of hand wavium. Yeah. Good. <laughs> yeah, it's all Yes. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Pratchett was no stranger to hand wavium, phlebotinum, or whatever you like to call the a wizard did it equivalent for science fiction. In his introduction to Behind the Sofa, a book collecting celebrity memories of Doctor Who to raise money for Alzheimer's research, he gives the modern incarnation of the show a gentle ribbing, describing it as being powered by make it up as you go alongium. That's probably too long a title for a podcast, but there is a good one called Hand Wavium. It's a delightful Doctor Who podcast hosted by a father and his, <clears throat> uh, excuse me, sorry, uh, by a daughter and her father. Something I did like about the thing where there's these three men in a room who all have competing things. He even like sort of draws attention to it. They are a, a uniform and overalls and a suit. And so they're all sort of representing different areas and different wants. Hmm. And I think that's why the police officer never gets a name because he's seen as part of a generic mass of people. Hmm. There are two police mm. officers, aren't there? Which makes them even more generic. I, I, huh. I think there's one that talks to him. Yeah. It's implied that there's... Co- I think he, he does say there's coppers there, and I think mm. there's possibly more than two, but there's only one who speaks to him. They're very generic, okay. yeah. Yeah, and they don't get... And none of them get names. In fact, there's only there's only the three characters, yeah, as you say, in the story who get names, mm. which is... Three people well, in the room get names. Except... Yeah. yeah, that's right. The dead guy gets a name. The woman doesn't get a name. No, Not she doesn't. Much. She later gets a name, doesn't she? But they don't give her a full name. They just give her a first name. Susanna? Oh, I think oh, you're right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But see, again, you know, it's like, it's so rarely mentioned that you can kind of just miss it because they don't tell you when you would expect to find out. This supports mm. my theory too. Mm. You have to get to this theory. Yeah. The suspense is killing me. We'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, let's get through the story first because there's not much more plot to go anyway. But it turns out the reason that the suit is there and the reason the coppers are insistent that CGM's own people do not do this investigation is that the person dead in the machine is none other than Michael Dever or Diva. I'm not, how would you say that? Dever. Dever? The developer. Yeah, well, yes, well. Sorry, mm-hmm. I spoiled that, because, but his name spoils that. It does, because he is, yeah, one of the top designers and developers at CGEM who designs their equipment. And his machine is not just a regular machine, it's a standard good model, but then it's got lots of bits, custom add-ons and stuff that he's wired together, and it's got lots of connections out to the outside world as well, like an unusual number, it's remarked upon. And the tubes. And the tubes. Oh, yeah, that's right. There's, has tubes. There's tubes. It's got her, it, Are they tubes for internet? No, they're tubes for. Uh, there's a few things he buries in the story because there are so many ideas in there. Yeah, and one of the the really creepy ideas is the neotonics. Where's, where's my note? Oh yeah, uh, in, that's right. Internox mixture, the intelligent Aether's friend. It's like a gas that helps you wake up every now and then, no. so you can get out of the machine. No, I no? think what Pratchett is saying is it's a gas that makes you high. Can, makes you trip so that if you don't want to leave your fantasy world, even though you have to to go to the toilet, otherwise, as he says, uh, you're sitting in your own shit, it makes you still feel like you're kind of trippy and an, it, so you can avoid the real world while you do your half an hour of eating, cleaning, going to the toilet, mm. that kind of stuff. That's what Internox is. It is such a creepy, buried idea. It's up there with the exoskeletons, I think, of the, the, the turning the screw on this idea to make it deeply disturbing. 
Yeah, I, 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 you know, as you said, that makes more sense. I think I had read it as if it was just it eases you out of the reality slowly. That's how I read it. It does though. say, yeah. but, but then I think you're right. Like it, because it also gives you a high. So it's like, yeah, you come out of the reality and you don't really realize that you're even out of it until you get back into it. Because he mentions about like not coming out screaming, but then he also like mentions daydreams later. And I think that retroactively sort of cements the true nature of that. It's actually yeah. kind of reminded me a lot of, was it My Year of Rest and Relaxation by Otessa Moshveg, that novel that came out a few years ago. This is kind of spoilery, but not hugely, because I think it's more about how it's written than the plot. It's a woman who is beautiful, wealthy, doing really well, hugely depressed, but not in a conventional way. And her solution to that is to find a shonky psychiatrist who will um, give her a whole lot of different drugs so she can just basically be asleep for most of the time except to wake up every so often and eat a piece of pizza clean herself and then go back into her haze for like a year and it reminded me for obvious reasons i think of this because mm. it's about wanting to not be in the real world isn't it yeah although uh, one of the interesting things is that, that well they get a bit more into this guy um michael in that he's still working for CGM. He's still making stuff and designing stuff for them, but he's been working from home for the last, I can't remember if they do say it's five years, but it's like around about that time, which would be. What a foreign concept. Yeah. Oh, in fact, it is. It's five <laughs> years. He's been working from home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what crazy idea in 1990. <laughs> but yeah, he was working from home and, and they never see him, but that's fine because he still does all the work. And the reason that they investigated him was that he missed a deadline for a meeting or a product design. Isn't that just so real though? It's like, oh, if we don't need to check up on you, you're fine. As long as you do, oh, he hasn't made a deadline. Now is the moment we're going to see how he's doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. We, you don't, <laughs> we don't care about you. Unless you're not producing things for us. Yes. yes. Very, very hyper-capitalist, cyberpunky sort of attitude for the future. Or indeed reality, unfortunately. Just in general, throughout human history. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but and so he's dead. And the tubes into the helmet are actually quite important because the the CGM suit is like, oh, yeah, could one of those valves have stuck and it gave him too much gas or, and he's dead? Is that why? And- Darren's like, no, they, they can't really do that. They've got all these fail-safes. So, the suit's like, no, we think it's that. And Darren is on to the fact that CGM don't make that. That is from a different company. And so, if that's what failed and killed him, they're not liable. So, he's like, no, that didn't happen. But I see why you're grasping at that straw. <laughs> so, yeah. And then they reveal to him something else, which Patrick just sort of casually throws in in a line that there's another dead body in the next room. Yeah, I was like, what? This is a really short story. How can you have a second dead body? Mm. Agatha Christie, like, gives you a whole novel for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's- uh, This story just kept throwing things mm. at you, and you're like, whoa, what? Oh, this is not what I expected. Mm. And the person in the next room who's dead is a woman. She's not named at this point, and the copper who's with him showing him this situation to give him the full picture lets him know that, look, as far as we can tell, she died five years ago- not a coincidental amount of time, and seems to have died in childbirth in this bed and has been here ever since, which is creepy as hell. Um, At least she's in a body bag. You know, there are little, yes. there's so much in this story that there are a whole bunch of things I didn't notice first time around. But at least Michael cleaned th- things up a bit and put her in a bag. So, But she's still there dead in the room. If I practically needed a body bag, I don't know where I'd get one without it being deeply suspicious. Like, I mean, you go to the hospital and be like, hey, um, I don't even know the morgue would have them or if it's like BYO situation. You'd end up like, on a list if you Googled where do I buy body bags. 
Yeah, but you'd be like, I am a writer. Yeah. I can Google whatever I want. <laughs> See, now I'm trying to solve this problem in my head, which is feeling quite disturbing to me. But I'm thinking, well, maybe you get like a heavy duty like suit bag. It'd be pretty close. I'm just so my it's, own. <laughs> not sealed though. Yeah. Yeah. I am wrong though. As I look at the story again, her name is Susanna. It is mentioned here not long after she's introduced, but then she's never really referred to by name again. It's all just she, she, her, and gives her this sort of weird kind of third hand person feel, which kind of makes sense when we get to the twist in the story. <laughs> Sorry. I, I shouldn't say it like that. A lot of short stories have twists. Certainly most of Pratchett's do. Which, you know, helps because you don't have much time to do anything else. No. But for a while there, I was really annoyed with this story because the only woman in it was a fridged breeder, basically. Yeah. And I was thinking, Terry, Terry, you're supposed to be good at this stuff. You're, you're an exemplar on men writing women. But then the twist comes. But I mean, you know, even he, particularly at this time of his career, did not always get it right, yeah. even in his novels. You know, like you look at characters like Kanina um, and Isabel and you're like, Look, there's, they're better than a lot of what was on offer in the late 80s and early 90s, but not by much. Yeah, and then there's a story like this, which just throws that trope in there, and you're like, ooh. But it kind of redeems itself a bit, mm. but it's still kind of gross. Mm. Yeah. This is where we get- and There's a bit of a digression in the story here where they he sort of goes back to the history of virtual or artificial reality and where it comes from, which is interesting because it kind of links it to the real world, and we never get a sense- in the story of quite how far in the future this is meant to be. They played Space Invaders and stuff as children, so I feel like it's an alternate reality version of the 90s. Yes. So Because his vision yeah. of the future is basically Blade Runner. Because mm, of the Philip K. Dick thing. Yeah, I guess that's true, because I was looking at it going, you know, we played healthy games when I was a kid. Great line from the copper. We played healthy games when I was a kid. Elite <laughs> Space Invaders. That's a weird combination, I thought, because Elite is a fair bit after Space Invaders. <laughs> And while they're both space games, and no doubt, I think Terry would have probably been into both of those in his time, it seems weird to put them together in a sentence like that. I'm not sure how long between them, like it's at least a decade or more. No, past Ben, it was not. Elite came out just six years after Space Invaders, which in any case was certainly still going strong by the time Elite came along, and for a decade or more after that. Really, you should trust in Terry to always do his research, even if he probably didn't have to look further than his own household for this one. Let's get back to the other body in the other room, uh, Susanna. To be nitpicky, though, I don't think she died giving birth. I think something went wrong with her pregnancy and she bled out. Oh, you're right. Yeah. So. Yeah. And the copper's assumption is that this happened to her because he was in the machine and not paying any attention and that he'd mm. been there for five years, which... It's hard to know if that's tr- like we don't really get the full story, mm. uh, but reading between the lines, it seems like that might, maybe may, that could be what happened, but maybe it isn't. We're not really sure. Um, There's space for us to read that into the story, though, and yeah. uh, mm. that's one of the beautiful things about a story this small with with such little plot and so many references where where we have a certain amount of agency to put those bits together in ways that make sense to us. And that's. Mm. Yeah, whether it's implied or not, is yeah. how I read it too. Yeah. Darren goes on this bit of digression about how it started, like what, what went on and how people use it. And there's a line, there's actually a line in there that I want to pull out while we're discussing this section because one mm. of the things he says is nowadays you just see people walking around with artificial reality sets on their faces. The idea being that they're just changing things about their reality. They're making little edits. And the line is mm. mostly they're just changing a few little things, you know, 
maybe they edit out black men Whoa. or slogans or add a few trees. Yeah. And you're like, the first one is like, hold on, <laughs> excuse me. And then ugly people later on, there's a suggestion that a steward, stewards oh. on a plane edit out ugly people. I mean, the, the charitable definition, I mean, we, we know this is not how Pratchett thinks, but it is a, it's quite full on. And I, for me, when I got to that line, that like totally changed my impression of Darren at that point. Like, cause he's just accepting that as something that, like a little thing that people change about their lives, erasing an entire ethnicity of people out of their world. And I'm like, this is much darker than I imagined. And also I was not ready for this. Like, We've got a dead woman in a room who's been there for five years, and now, like, a few paragraphs later, we've got people editing black people out of their lives. This is full-on dystopian territory and kind of confronting in a way that I wasn't ready for. See, I got that from early on. I thought it was, like, a very dark story almost from the get-go. He's world-weary, fed up, and doesn't really feel like he can change the world is the, the vibe I got. So when he throws away a line like that, that just says that, oh, you know, when granted the opportunity, people will just be horrendous. And saying it in a bored, throwaway tone of voice just shows how, like, resigned and how broken this world is. So I, like, that line did sort of jolt me a bit. I was kind of like, oh, no, that's saying this is what people are like. It's getting into the the dark nature of, like, a lot of horrible Mm. people. I felt it was too light a touch for this. Like, that that bit really stood out to me. And when you look at some of the other things that Pratchett's written about race, and we've talked about it particularly in conjunction with the Johnny Maxwell books where he confronts it in a real-world context – and he chooses very deliberately to use some words which confront the reader. I want to be charitable knowing Pratchett's sort of background. I don't like this. Like, this part of the story stands out for me because the way that he says it, yes, he's jaded, but he's also just like, he then says, you know, they're just tinkering a bit, just helping themselves through the day. He's putting those things in the same category and making no distinction between I want a few extra trees and I don't want to see black people. Like, it's it's gross. Yeah, it is gross, but to me that's why it's so good. Yeah, what well, makes me think the character is awful though. I don't yes. I don't think he's like above it. I think he's just accepting of it with no criticism and that makes me kind of hate him a bit. Yeah, <laughs> the character, I should stress, not the author. And and I think that's totally fine because like he is a product of the societies in I think he is supposed to be somewhat contemptible like cuz he's not shaken by all the horrible things he's seeing. He's not that fast about like Susanna being dead, he's kind of like, oh, it's something I haven't seen before. Mm. His main gripe is um, people using technology too much. It's not what it says about the darker side of human nature and and the the turn that society has taken and accepted as a result of it. I think the fact that he is so blasé about it, I don't think you're supposed to like him. That's why I made a point of saying that he's not amiable in the description. He's mm. horrifying, <laughs> like in some ways, like he, the, his flattened affect basically throughout nothing tips him up or down it's all the same and that's a problem Mm. and he does say he has no imagination throughout so i think having that line equating two things that are very much not equated but showing that that's the same in this guy's mind is one of the valuable things in this story to show like he thinks he's out of it he's not like affected by the machines and stuff but he's not like he is just as affected by the society as everyone else so I think it's supposed to be a confronting line, and I think you're not supposed to like him. It is supposed to shock you. Mm. Mm. And it's a hint to what's really going on, I think. <laughs> Back to my theory again. 
Okay. <laughs> but as in like you're you're totally valid to be like, I hate this and I hate him. Like yes. it's that's absolutely and I think that's something that Pratchett was trying to harness and bring mm. out. So I'm just saying that my interpretation of that is that it's a good thing in terms of what the story ultimately is saying. Yeah. Yes. And I think it is important too to have characters who seem quite mundane and amiable on the surface but do have those sorts of thoughts because we have to recognize that that's how the real world works. Like it's not <laughs> racists are not mustache twirling villains or all members of the Ku Klux Klan, right? It's much more insidious and systemic than that. So this is maybe it's forward thinking in a way of going, this is a very normal character who just thinks this is a normal thing to do. And you're like, that's gross. And racists think they're the heroes in their world. And just yeah. like Darren thinks like he's the hero in his world. So yeah. his sort of casual description of these these horrific attitudes is part of his perception of himself, mm. a reflection of himself, his own jadedness, his own unhappiness with the yeah. world. Well, he goes on to say, after this sort of blasé statement, <laughs> that it's just become rife. Like, people are using AR technology all the time. There's APHAs everywhere now. It's interesting. Sorry, just to cut across you, to completely oh, cut yeah. across you. You said AR there. Which is what he's talking about, augmented reality in, in lots mm. of ways, when people are walking down the street. But that term didn't exist in 1990 or 1989 when he mm. wrote the story. So there are, there are a few little things that date the story like that, that he's talking about a technology that's just about to be released next year, except it's next year every year. You know, Apple's always just about to release their augmented reality glasses. It's always one year in the future. But this is what he's talking about. But he's talking about an artificial reality. So he's kind of confusing mm. these two terms that we now know are completely separate. And there's a great line where he talks about uh, Michael at work, at work and uh, how he sends his work in over the link or something like that. Yeah. Uh, like now we were just talking about the internet or whatever. Yeah, he sends all his stuff in over the link is the line. There's these little, little moments where you think, oh, yeah, this was written 30 years ago. And he's writing yeah. about stuff that's really commonplace now. I mean, famously, you know, Neil Gaiman was in America for a lot of the time. They were writing Good Omens together because he was still working on Sandman. Yes. And they would mail floppy disks to each other with parts of the story on it. Yeah. Uh, because there was no reliable, it was difficult to send large amounts of data over the internet. You couldn't attach a whole novel to an email in those days. So it was mm. very different. And the other idea that sort of a whole novel's worth of idea is buried in the middle of, around this section here where he talks about how the university transcribing all its books into data and, and then some kid puts a McLint virus. Why the virus gets a name, but people generally don't in this story is a really interesting question. And mm -hmm. all that data's erased. And suddenly all that data's gone, you know, gone forever. So the, the history of words is gone forever. And it, that's a really interesting idea buried in the middle of the story that feels really mm. dated now because once something's scanned and uploaded, it's everywhere and instantly accessible to everyone. Yeah, you can't, you can't really, it's difficult to get rid of information now <laughs> yes. in a way that could not have been predicted, I think, in 1990. Although this whole story reminds me very much of, and I think I mentioned this actually in our recent bonus episode, but there's an interview that Pratchett did for GQ magazine with Bill Gates about how you would be able to tell what was good information on the internet. It, was, mm. it would have been after this, but probably not more than five or six years after this, I think. He's very forward thinking, he's plugged into what is happening, but it's weird to think what things is he on the money with and what is wildly off. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's also a sidebar there where he talks about the fact that people do all kinds of gross stuff in the machines and there's like the implication that, you know, some kinds of violent crime have gone down because you can just get a program and do it in the AR. 
and the government and the cops don't like this because the idea there's all these people doing crimes, but they're not real crimes. So, which is interesting, you know, in the age of moral panics around things like Grand Theft Auto and stuff to compare that. Mm. Feels like it's another Philip K. Dick nod because like it's kind of minority report areas as mm. well. Like if they haven't done the crimes and it's different, like the novella is different to the film. But yeah, it's, um, I also didn't buy that section where he's like, oh yeah, all these crimes have gone down because people can just act out their desires in the artificial reality. Sure, some would go down, but for some people, the fact that it's a crime is the reason to do it. So Mm. you just find ways to do different crimes. Yes. And the example he gives in the story, the horrible one about rapists being able to rape a willing participant Mm. in a game would therefore eradicate the desire to rape in the real world is is completely off. But then he ends it with that great line, what the coppers don't like is there's all this crime going on in your head and they can't touch you for it. And I think that's a really interesting line too. Mm. That I think that works. The examples he gives don't work. But that line really works and makes it an interesting story. He does say, though, when he's talking about that example in particular, you don't have to be an Eisenstein. There's some weird <laughs> sort of uh, malapropisms in this story that sort of, I think, hark back to the fact that some information has been lost. <laughs> but anyway, he says uh, you don't have to be an Eisenstein to work out that isn't what it'd be like for real if you catch my drift. So I think he's saying, like, Actually. people think it's going to be what it's like for real, but he's like, it's not really. But, Yeah. It's, it is, I agree. It's a bit weird. And again, like, you know, I was like, mm, I don't like this character, but it's a, there's not much space to unpack those ideas and they're very big ideas. Um, so it sort of, you know, he throws them at the wall and then moves on quickly. But Darren goes back. He's checking the valves on the gas feed and he's like, no, look, that's all fine. And he cleans the machine out and he's like, there's nothing wrong with it. I can reactivate it. And then he carefully plugs his own headset in to check out what the reality was that was in there because he's being careful about the viruses, the McClint one and others, uh, and some viruses that sort of hurt people or freak them out. He goes in and has a look, and this is where he has that direct address to the reader. He says, you know, you know what I saw is basically the real world, but maybe she's still alive and there's the voice of a child from the next room. And he tells that to the cops and they're like, okay. But then he has this question, which is like, look, um, I just want to ask something, though. Like, I know things are not quite right in this world, but how could someone be dead for five years and nobody notices? Like, that doesn't make sense. And then they, the copper in the suits kind of look at each other and they go, well. Mm-hmm. Um, and they show him these reports that say she's been seen at the shops by the shop assistants who earlier in the story have been referenced as some of the people who wear headsets at work to help them deal with it. She's been on a plane. She's traveled somewhere. And like, again, flight attendants are people who wear headsets and she's been seen repeatedly over the last five years. And he works out that she has been turned into basically a virus that has traveled in and infected a whole bunch of other artificial reality systems and exists now out there in what we would think of as the internet as an artificial person. And it's not really said whether this is like a scan of her brain, whether it's a real like a copy of the real person or whether it's an artificially created simulation mm. of her. He says a couple of times, not as good as life, but better than death. Yeah. So it's not really clear. Mm. And I don't think there's any details in the bit where they talk about her body that sort of suggests she's been wired up to a machine or anything. Mm. No, she's dead. That's kind of almost the end of the plot. There's one final twist, which we'll get to, but he says that you won't have heard about this. It's all been hushed up by CGEM because they're a big corporation. They can make it quiet if they want. But maybe, maybe you've seen her. And this is a hark back to the line early in the story where he says, you might have seen her. She could be anywhere. Maybe you've seen him. 
he also says, which kind of gives it away, but you don't really notice it at the time because what he reveals to us, but he didn't reveal to the cops, is that when he saw her in the artificial reality, she said, tell him to hurry. Mm. And the clear implication is that he has joined her out there. He's found a way to sort of scan himself or upload himself. Uh, as we would say in modern times, he's uploaded his brain to the cloud and joined her as a virus-like entity in the artificial reality space, which is where he leaves us. Mm. It's it's really super idea and it's a super ending. And I kind of feel like it's a shame he had to explain so much. I feel like this is a story that would work better now because you mm. could just assume the readers know all this stuff and you wouldn't have to explain anything. And in fact, it feels almost like the beginning of a story that would be written in yeah. 2022. What happens next? You know, we've had, we're so used to the idea of people living in the net and artificial people living on after death and so on and so forth. But in, in 1990, that's the whole thing. That's the whole, that's the core of the story. Well, I think we're supposed to think it's the core of the story, but it is, it is a really cool idea from back then. Yeah. Whereas now, I mean, you see like there's been like at least probably three or four episodes of Black Mirror, yeah. for example about this kind of stuff. I don't want to spoil any of them in case, because in a couple of them, it's kind of meant to be a surprise. But you, yeah. And there's also, like, there's a lot, actually, this has a lot, it's very Black Mirror vibes, this whole story, like the whole thing where you're wearing some sort of artificial or augmented reality headgear or you have an implant, um, which is what we would normally think of as being futuristic now, where it edits your view of reality. Like, that's the basis for at least two or three different stories uh, in Black Mirror as well. So, it's got that real vibe to it. And also, it's quite dark, as we've been saying. So, that also gives it a real Black Mirror vibe. And no one's nice in it, really, except yeah. for, well, except for the, the couple. I suppose they're kind of nice. But. Yeah. And I've got to wonder if- um, What's the Black Mirror guy's name? I've forgotten his name. Charlie Brooker. I wonder if Charlie has read this story, <laughs> if it was one of the things that influenced him. That'd be interesting to find out. Like even if you go back further, and it's not the same thing. Like even in the Wizard of Oz, like the original book, you know, the Emerald City isn't actually emerald. They make you put on glasses when you go oh, in yeah. to protect you from the glare of the emeralds. Oh. But actually, that's the thing that makes the normal city look cool. Huh. Emerald tinted glasses, yeah. So even before computers, it's kind of about like editing what we see and accepting different realities. I wonder how yeah. old the phrase "rose-colored glasses" is. If yeah. only the information at that university hadn't been wiped, we could look it up. Maybe over the link. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's name? I don't know. Yeah, it's right. Oh, I love those lines. Man's thirst for what's name and dawn of thingy. They're so pratchety. There's- <laughs> they are. It's a quintessential. Like we could. I mean, I don't know if this was on our list, but we could have called this podcast, you know, the Was Name Cast or something. You know, it would have been very appropriate. Because <laughs> he really only has one common man's voice, as, as far as I can tell, and it's it's great and it's charming and it's wonderful. But it was so it was so weird seeing it in this in such a dark story. I, yeah, sure. yeah. I think I, maybe you know what I think that sort of explains why I had such a reaction to. Some of the things that Darren says is because he sounds like Fred Colin yes. or or one of the regular characters, and you're just like, but I want, I thought I was supposed to like you, but you're awful. Um, yeah, so it was a bit confronting, I think. But again, you know, that's that's a good thing to be aware of. You know, just because somebody's nice doesn't mean that they're not. You know, just because they're polite or they're friendly doesn't mean they don't believe or act on some really horrible stuff. Mm-hmm. Look, before we get into your pet theory, Sean, I just want to give us an opportunity. Are there any other favorite lines or bits that anyone wants to read out and share 
because there's so many, like, for a short story, and it's quite short. Like, I think in my electronic edition, it's not very long. Like, depending on the size of the font you're using, it's only six to 12 pages. I liked Madame Overy. Yeah. That was a thing that the fancy people enjoyed. Like, when we only enjoy the highbrow, like, virtual reality things, like Madame Overy. I thought he was talking about fancy porn until I realized that he's supposed to be an everyman who doesn't quite get the names of things right. But, yeah, <laughs> Madame Overy. Is it? Group. I see because I like I said before I kind of read that two ways like is that because he's are they malapropisms because he's not that well educated because he does say at one point people assume he's got a bunch of degrees to work on these machines but he's like no that's not me so I think he does say like I'm not educated to go back to your earlier point but is it that or is this a side effect of more of the information having been lost and no one really remembers what they are. Because there's a later bit where he, he mixes up Romeo and Juliet and West Side Story because he's talking about how romantic it potentially is that these two now get to live together in artificial reality forever. And he likens it to, yeah, it's like that story, you know, um, oh, it's a musical set in New York, Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> You're like, okay, yeah. Well, it's, just, it's like there's no common pop culture anymore because everyone's living in their own little world. So you kind of have to grasp for these things that you think other people might know. Mm. bit like- the age of streaming television. <laughs> I think if you lost the history of English over time, all of society's language would adjust to not being able to look things up because it's implied strongly that they're not trying to rebuild it, even though he said that thing about... Oh, um, yeah. So... That was it, weird. It, it could be either way. It could be he doesn't know these things or that's how people talk now because it's been enough time that things have devolved. Or evolve, depending on how you look at it, because like language is constantly changing. So, mm. actually, that that thing, uh, that whole thing that you said, you set up a whole story, the the destruction of the dictionary or etymology, that feels like a Jasper Ford novel waiting to happen. Actually, now that I yeah. think about it, that's a very <laughs> Jasper Ford kind of idea. Ford thinking. Any other favorite bits? He captures some really icky things really nicely, apart from the tongue sleeve or whatever. There's there's the description of the home when Darren walks into the house where Michael is dead and his wife, it turns out, has been dead or partner's been dead for five years. All the smell of the dead bodies have been cleaned up. That's all gone. And Michael says that's because of the cops. But we'll come back to that. So the only smell in the house is a sort of a musty smell. When when you leave your home, say, Pratchett writes, and your mum keeps the room just like it was for 10 years, that's the kind of smell. And I think that's a beautiful description of the space they're in, both literally and kind of metaphorically. That's that's become the space of the whole world because everything that's horrible is, is erased, but there's a kind of musty staleness left behind because... There's no talk of new stuff. Mm. Uh, nobody really remembers the old stuff. It's just musty whatever. And that's all that's left once everything's been edited out. And I think that's just a beautiful little line that kind of captures Michael's way of looking at the world or experiencing the world rather. Just mm. this dead kind of mustiness to which our old bedrooms all return. It's very grim. <laughs> yeah. Oh. The best way to avoid that problem is just to have none of your family living in any of the houses that you lived in when you were a kid. It's all gone. That's right. It's all yeah, vanished. <laughs> and I think that ties in with the poem, too, that is the source of the title. Mm. The poem, it's a beautiful poem, a really interesting poem that scholars debate about, you know, what's it really about? Is it about a, a seducer trying to convince a girl to go to bed with him? And it sort of seems like that at the beginning, but then he starts talking about, well, one day we'll all be old and our bodies will be dead and everything will have been you know, forgotten. And there's this great line, the graves are fine and private place, but none, I think, 
do their embrace. And I think that's that feels like the kind of mood that Pratchett is evoking at times in this story. Yeah. yeah. And we should say that poem that we're referring to is uh, To His Coy Mistress by Andrew Marvel. It was written in the uh, 1670s, I think. It wasn't published until after he died. I think it was written maybe even a bit earlier than that. And it's famously quoted in a lot of things. The first lines are, had we but world enough and time, this coyness lady were no crime. We would sit down and think which way to walk and pass our long love's day. Ooh. Yeah, it's a it's a classic. Um, and you, you see it pop up all over the place. Peter Capaldi's final couple of episodes of Doctor Who, one of them was titled World Enough and Time. And yeah. perfect for him too, because towards the end, the poem goes, But at my back I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near, and yonder all before us lie deserts of vast eternity. Um, which is a oh, fantastic imagery. Oh, yeah. great. I love this poem. <laughs> um, Liz, did you, did you have any favourite bits that you wanted to read out? We've said them all across the thing. Like, we've pulled out all of my favorite bits. I think my absolute favorite was the guy you wouldn't notice if, even if you were trapped in a wardrobe with him. Mm-hmm. It was kind of great. And the, of course, I jogged him sort of. That's why he's, he looks all right. He, cause he goes for jogs. But yeah, I think we've, um, pulled out most of my favorite lines. Yeah. Well, it's a funny Pratchett story because there are less of those lines, but the, I mean, the, <laughs> All his novels are full of great lines, and it's kind of the wrong way around. Novels are supposed to be little paper boats of gold floating on rivers of mundane kind of shit because there's time to sort of skim through paragraphs to get to the good stuff. And whereas a short story, every sentence is supposed to be gold. But here it's kind of the reverse. We've got all these info dumps, all this information that's coming at us in in perfectly serviceable, well-written prose that evokes all sorts of stuff. But... The gold lines, the lines you remember, there's only a few of them scattered through the story. And again, mm. I think that's deliberate. I think it's he's evoking that sense of mustiness and, and kind of deadness, even in his own story. Even while it's brilliantly written, it's still capturing that feeling. Skillful mm. stuff. Yeah. I do think there's a lot of care, even in the, all that sort of very dry stuff, yes. though. Like, the technobabble is great. The little details of things that set it in the future... Like, you know, he says at one point, it's not all remakes of Rambo 24. <laughs> but then there's also just like the voice of Darren is, I, I said before, he sounds just like Fred Collin. And he mostly does have that common voice that Pratchett gives a lot to his like everyman characters. But he's also, yeah, a bit flat, like you were saying, Liz. And he says something and he goes, my little joke, like mm. as if you wouldn't know it was a joke. And but it was very funny. And he just wants to give himself the credit. Like, and and I think that was the thing. That made me go, oh, you're a bit insufferable, aren't you? But I kind of like you anyway. And then I was like, oh, maybe I don't like you after all. He's the sort of person, if that at the end of the book revealed that he just killed tons of people, I'd have been like, yeah, that me. I believe that. <laughs> it it could have gone that way. Yeah. Mm. I think it has. You think it has? Ooh, yeah. yeah. Look, let's get theory. to your right. theory before we get to listener questions, because you have a, a very interesting <laughs> take very on this story. Well, I don't know that it's that interesting, really, because I think it's kind of an obvious take. And it's, mm. and because, and I'm sure it wasn't an obvious take in 1990. In 2022, when we've seen lots of, here's a story about people living in a virtual world, the obvious twist is <gasps> the protagonist is in the virtual world too. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I didn't come up with this theory on my first read or even my second read. It was the third read. I was telling Ben earlier about four o'clock in the morning, I woke up going, <gasps> 
Darren's in his own virtual world. And then, then I, in my half asleep state, I thought, maybe I am too, you know, and which is exactly the feeling <laughs> that these stories are supposed to be. But, but I started looking at the story in the light of that, thinking it might be interesting, an interesting way to look at the story or even just discuss the story or even just a throwaway joke, you know, what if Darren's in his own virtual world? And I think there's a lot in here that suggests it. Now, I know Terry didn't like literary theory, but there is a kind of a theory called reception theory where, you know, what a story means is kind of different to every person who reads it and a reader brings their own kind of background and they can make their own kind of meaning in a story that may be quite different to what the author intended. So I don't know that this is what Terry intended, but I think you can read the possibility that Darren is in his own virtual world throughout this story. And there are little lines, like the line about the no imagination and proud of it. And artificial reality just like reality ought to have been. Now, what what would reality look like to Darren? You know, he says a lot in the story about what he thinks reality is. And in his vision of reality, he's the guy who's kind of knows how it all really works. And it seems to go that way. He's the one who works out about the virus of, the, of, of Susanna, who's everywhere, and that Michael is going to join them. Two named characters, notice. He pieces it all together, so he's the kind of hero. He's got an audience to tell this story to, and that's us, of course, but it's also who might it be in the story that he's telling the story to. And there's this little idea buried in the story that I wouldn't even have noticed, but for the fact that Terry Pratchett mentioned it himself. This is a story about a, a handyman who goes around shoring up everybody else's fantasies. That's, that's his job, right? Every six months, he kind of goes in and tops up their gas, makes sure the gear is working so, so they don't die on the job kind of thing. I think he's a sociopath who's invading all these fantasies. When he goes around to check on his customers, he's invading their worlds to tell them his story, which is how cool he is, you know, just this other day. You know, maybe they're based on truth. Maybe they're completely fabricated. They can't <laughs> be completely fabricated if he's actually working, you know, doing this job on the side. It must be partly true, but every good lie is based at least partly on truth. He's telling the story to these people who are trapped in these chairs, wanting to enjoy their own fantasy world, and when he says, look, you're educated, he means, look, you're smart enough to have got yourself into this situation, trapped in a chair, living what you think is a fantasy world. But hey, you've got to hear my story because I'm the one who's keeping you alive in the real world. Mm. And there are so many hints throughout the story. Once you start looking at it, there's a line, most of the conversations you have with most people are just to reassure one another that you're alive. He's having that conversation with somebody in a chair to reassure them that they're alive, but he's also doing it for himself because he knows that he's trapped in a chair. He has erased that understanding from his world, just like, just like he imagines that people have erased ugly people and black people. He knows that's horrible, but he also knows that what he's done to himself is horrible, but it keeps kind of leaking through. And he says, people and machines. I can live with that. He's kind of done that to himself. It's not like life, but probably it isn't death either. Sort of like a godfather, me. All the way through, he's bringing people, including himself, into this weird, screwed up kind of afterlife where the graves are fine and private place, but none, I think, do their embrace. And he's talking about himself in, in that poem. He can't embrace anybody except by subjecting his own version of reality on them. Hmm. So that's my kind of theory 
I think that's great and has a lot of evidence backing it up, mm. especially because like, he, uh, he starts off by saying not be having with machines, but then he talks about how he experimented with getting the things. So, like, there's already a contradiction there and maybe... Mm. He went further than his Avatar version thinks he did. That's right. And this is why everybody's a caricature in this story. Because maybe none of this happened. And uh, what's that line about suits? Uh, life can get very complicated for men in overalls who have problems with men in suits and men in uniforms. He, he, he lives that life. Life would be very complicated if the suits and the uniforms discovered what he was doing. So he's kind of acting out this fantasy in the world where he's too smart for them to catch him. And... Mm. Uh, and that's kind of cool in a way, mm, you know, <laughs> why not? That's, that, that's his world. But we've got this glimpse into this ugliness world, this ugliness where even he knows that it's not right. And there's that line, what the coppers don't like is there's all this crime going on in your head and they can't touch you for it. He's kind of gloating saying, ha, 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 here I am in my illegal world. You can't get me coppers because I'm better <laughs> than you, you know. He's like Hannibal. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but that's... All right. That's, you know. <laughs> Eating futures, not bodies. That's right. So that's my theory. But I do say, I do say, I, as I said earlier, any kind of story like this invites this kind of reading. And I'm sure it's mm. not what Terry meant. And maybe I'm completely wrong. Maybe it doesn't hang together. Maybe all the clues that I picked up, like first person, you know, this is a completely solipsistic story. That's another reason why it's written in first person. You know, maybe I'm just imagining it myself. I'm in my own artificial reality in which I have correctly interpreted this story and everybody else is listening to this is going, William, snap out of it. Snap out of it. Quick, s switch on the drug. Get him out. You know, <laughs> vanish up his own but, asshole in a second. Oh, no. But in your reality, you also wrote the story. Oh, so, God. yeah. That means I'm Terry Pratchett. Good. No. What? Oh. This is too meta. I, this broke my I, <laughs> I feel like I've gone halfway from your story. Like I am embracing this idea of that he's a bit of a sociopath who inserts himself into other people's artificial realities when he's servicing their machines and talks to them like this while he- Like, I'm now imagining the person he's telling this story to- he, Maybe he's not even inserted himself into the machine. He's just talking to one of his clients while he's cleaning their machine. Maybe. And he doesn't care. And he thinks they're all jerks. I like this idea, but I no, I feel like he's in the real world. But what about the last line, Ben? What about the, the very last, last line of the story, which puzzled me when I, I I read it. I thought, oh, he really, he really, he didn't ace the landing here. He struggled to find that last line, and it niggled at me until I thought, ah, try that in the real world and see what happens. He's talking about. <laughs> People tinkering with technology. Try that in the real world, and it won't work because it'll work in this world. It'll work in the main character's world, Darren's world, because it's a made-up world that Darren made up. No. But in the real world, it won't work. I Look, I took that entirely to be the kind of tradesman's attitude that these people writing the textbooks don't know what, anything about the real practicalities of life because <laughs> it's in the context of him. Because this is the reveal where we find out what kind of books he enjoys reading that he's referred to. Um, he enjoys reading books like Elements of OSCF Bandpass Design in Computer Generated Environments, um, which is what CGEM evolved from computer generated environments. I think we touched on that earlier. But it's, uh, yeah, so <laughs> I don't know. I did enjoy the techno babble in this story. I'm not going to read any more of it out. Like you can enjoy it for yourself, but it, just a lot of the names and numbers and terms. I'm like, yeah, this feels like when I first learned about computers. <laughs> yes. It's very nostalgic, retro futurism. Uh, now, yeah, 
There's another line in here. I'm not sure it supports my theory, but I think it's a wonderful character moment where he says, you shouldn't turn in on yourself. It's a little moralizing moment. You shouldn't turn on yourself. It's not what being human means. You've got to reach out. Now, whether he's subjecting his story to his incapacitated customers or whether he's just bailed up somebody on the bus, but I feel like <laughs> the character Dazza is reaching out because he feels isolated in this world where nobody really connects. He never mentions any family, any friends, any loved ones. It's just him and the machines. And he's reaching out through the story. He's in pain. He's suffering. He's alone. Aren't we all? I think it's a really deep little moment in the story and I love it. Yeah. Yeah, that is nice. And look, I think um, speaking of the end, there is one other bit that I really liked. There's a very explicit call out to Blade Runner not being a very accurate idea of the future uh, in those last paragraphs where he says, I mean, when I was a kid, we thought the future would be all crowded and cool and rainy with big glowing Japanese adverts everywhere and people eating noodles in the street. At least you'd be communicating, if only to ask the other guy to pass the soy sauce. <laughs> My joke. Uh, <laughs> uh, but then he says, and then I think this is quite prescient because it's very applicable now. What we got, we got this information revolution, with capitalised, what it means is no bugger knows anything and doesn't know they don't know and they just give up, um, which is interesting from someone who, you know, says Eisenstein and mm. uh, Madame Overy <laughs> and, uh, and Romeo and Juliet is set in New York with good dance numbers. Um, but, yeah, I that's that was quite nice. I enjoyed that. I just realised that the CGEM guy's initials are PC. Oh, interesting. Oh. So I was like, what about the others? Do they mean anything? But it's like DT and, um, what was it? MD. Mmm. 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 Mm. But yeah, I think I PC is deliberate. The others might just be. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I, I think, sure, you might be on the money there with the Carney connection that I did not make, but I, that's good. I think it could be both. It could be Carney plus, like, you just give them a P name and then you get, you get to have your cake and eat it too. Absolutely. I just wish it was Pat Carney, your old teacher, because that would prove that we were living in a simulation. In <laughs> that your would simulation, be weird. Ben, that would have been so That would be brilliant. too weird. He was mm. not a computer guy. All the better. <laughs> He's a math exactly. teacher. That would not make a sense. Guy. Well, it would um, be too obvious otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be close, but no cigar. Yeah. Uh, look, we should get into our listener questions um, before we run out of time for today's mm. episode because we've got a few. We've got a few good ones. These are all from our Discord, so these are all from our subscribers. So thank you. This is often the case with the short stories. I think our general listenership possibly have not read as many of them. But that's fine. We hope that we've inspired you to give this story a go because there's a lot to recommend it. It's it's mm. quite a fascinating slice of what might the future be like in 1990. It's retro futuristic, isn't it? I think that's what they call it. Yeah. Retrofuturism, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. But it's not in the 1950s, like, you know, nuclear-powered cars kind of way, in mm. a very 90s kind of way, like, as I was talking about earlier. It's not like that famous, um, coming back to William Gibson, uh, he wrote that wonderful story called The Gernsback Continuum, where it's somebody in the 1980s driving along a highway and they get a glimpse of what the future should have been through a rift in time and space, and it's all mm. the great early science fiction stories. Uh, uh, towers and buildings and flying cars and all that kind of stuff. The world as it should have yep. been in 1986 instead. It wasn't. Yeah, wow. What a shame. Well, that memes, like the world without whatever the thing is, and it's this beautiful, like, futuristic, clean thing, and then world, yeah. Nice. <laughs> I've done a terrible job of describing that meme. I will try and find it for the show notes. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, we will, yeah, we'll try and show that one to you. But let's get to these questions, Liz. All right, so first question comes from Craig McSee via Discord. 
Did this idea of an afterlife disturb you? For me, it was, I'm sure, the only Sir Terry Pratchett writing that I did not fall immediately in love with. Ooh, interesting. Hmm. I, I don't know that I find it disturbing. I, and I actually find it very similar to some of the other ways he's written about the afterlife. We talked about The Last Hero recently. Spoiler alert, in case you haven't listened to or read that book. But at the end, that's when Colin the Barbarian and his friends die by falling off the mountain and exploding. But they don't, they don't really die. They kind of decide that they're not dead and they steal the Valkyrie's horses and go off to investigate other worlds after freeing Fingers Mazda. And in a very similar way, as I talked about in that episode, in Johnny and the Dead, the dead don't kind of go to a traditional afterlife. They build themselves, you know, a vehicle of the imagination and off they go into the universe to explore it. And it's like this idea that it's, you're not, you're not moving on to another place. You've just sort of transitioned into a different phase, like a different kind of existence in the same world as everyone else. Not in a kind of sad ghost kind of way, more in a kind of we're free kind of way. And so in that way, I feel like this is quite similar and quite on brand for him if an earlier kind of iteration of it that's mired in technology instead of magic or, or supernatural stuff. I think it's easy to think that this afterlife is dystopian is because it's delivered to us in such a dystopian way. You know, mm. you, your body's been dead in a body bag on its bed where it died for five years. And uh, that's the focus of the story. My, um, Michael Deaver is sitting in his chair wallowing in his filth where he's died. And it's not until the very end you realise, well, some kind of avatar of them has been having a great life. Uh, Susanna's been writing novels. She's been having a really fantastic, productive life as a virus. It's not, I think that's super. I'd love to become a virus. And then, well, in fact, in fact, I'd like to live in my body while my virus self is out <laughs> writing novels for me because that would make my life a lot easier. Um, please, can somebody invent that? Um, but, but because yeah. it's, it's delivered in such a horrible way, I think it's hard to get the stink of that off. We don't have an AFA to get rid of the stink just yet of that idea but and the world in which they're having this existence is also very clearly dystopian you know from from the way it's described the way that the technology has sort of warped the society mm. it's not a nice place to live but if you can live in everyone's artificial realities which are the nice part of that world then you could probably pretend it's okay and it, look, that's something we see in fiction now like there's that amazon series about the dude who gets uploaded I think it's just called Uploaded. Yeah, yeah and um, it is full of plot holes, and it irritated oh. me a lot. I was like, this is going to be great. <laughs> I couldn't And watch I was like, it. yeah. I've, no, I didn't I, watch um, it either. But I've been watching it, but I've, like, just taken an indefinite break because there's just so many things that don't make sense, like, in, in the world. But the much so. better show is Severance, where people edit mm. their working lives and outside lives into two completely separate They have their ah. memories of the one erased when they go to the other one or blocked. Right, um, I'll move to that, that one is then. Because- I hope you like it, Liz. I, it's my favourite show so far. This I am keen to see that. It sounds, I mean, it sounds freaky as, but yes, on a similar kind of note to this, where that technology has enabled this sort of dystopian horror, um, mm. but people are not aware of it because they're using technology to avoid it. One of the creepy ideas about it. people being able to edit their realities is what if you met somebody who had edited you out of their reality? So yeah. they just couldn't see you at all. What, that, what does that mean for your own identity? You know, if you're a black person or an ugly person or just somebody that somebody doesn't like, you know, I'm sure I'm edit- well, edited out of a few people's realities. <laughs> does all yeah. your actions get edited out as well? Like, cause if you found out that someone was super racist and they edited out your 
race from their reality? Could you do things to their reality that would just make it unpleasant? But that would also, like, you know, mm. not that mm. you should make your life about petty vengeance, etc. but I'm just <laughs> curious, like, if that was your storyline, how could that play out? Well, vengeance could be great because maybe they make you look like a white person. Maybe you could woo mm. them, and but it's not until you've thoroughly captured their heart that you go, ha-ha, I was black all the time, you know? Um if you edit yourself so that you're not filtered through their thing and then teach them the errors of their ways. Mm. Again, you know, there's a Black Mirror episode that's explicitly about yes. that. It's blocking. Yes. Yeah, you get blocked uh, where they take the idea of, yeah, blocking someone on social media and go, what if that was the real world? Which, I mean, is a, it's a bit of a flawed analogy. It's like, it's I don't need to listen to people on social media. It's fine to block them. But yeah, it is an interesting concept. What if you could do that to your real reality? So I guess I didn't find the idea of the afterlife disturbing in this story to answer your question, Craig, but I did find the world in which it happened and I would not want to be in it. <laughs> I would not, I would not want to be a digital ghost in that world, which it, oh, that saying digital ghost just threw me back to like the Osborne book of the computer that I used to have where they ex- sort of had these little ghost cartoon ghosts inside the computer explaining how it worked. I don't know why they had that. Um, but what about you, Liz? Do you want to be a digital ghost in the AR? Well, it certainly didn't disturb me. Um, this is something I could probably spend like two hours on itself, just mm. dissecting the different things. Cause I feel like humans in society have the potential to ruin anything that sounds good on paper. So like in theory, like the idea of being able to have a digital, and I, I would argue that it's not an afterlife. Cause if your consciousness is continuing, even if your body is dead, then are you really, is it the life continuing? Are you dead? Is it an afterlife or is it a continued life in a new format? Mm. But in terms of switching to this format to continue, um, first of all, is it me actually, or is it a copy of me? Because if she's self-replicating, then there's like tons and tons of different versions of her going all over the world and they all have different experiences unless they share like a hub where they all have the same experiences and are the same person. So she's like agent Smith in the matrix. So it depends on like, am I just, is it just lots and lots of me or is it one me with lots of different experiences? And do I have the option to pull the plug at any point? Cause if I get fed up, can I leave? That's, mm. that would be very important to me in terms of if, I, if it was something you could choose. Cause otherwise, like what happens if your code gets corrupted? What if the world changes a lot? What if society collapses and yet you're still forced to like hang around when everyone else is dead and then becomes a sort of hell and a purgatory like that? Also not great. So. Mm didn't disturb me, but I have a lot of questions that I would need answered before signing up for it. Well, the question that isn't spoken that you've just made me think of is, did Susanna sign up for it? Did Michael Deaver, Deaver, the devil, did he just create that avatar of her? Or was that what they were working on together and that killed her? Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's it's so... It's, yeah, it's so unknown. I mean, she, certainly the digital version of her seems very happy with him and wants him to come and join her. Yeah, like but if, she, if he created her, then. Of well, yeah, he exactly. Would. Is that because that's how the real her would have felt? Or is that because he's created an artificial her that feels that way? Like that's, mm, yeah. But then does it matter? Because like she wouldn't know because it's not actually her. It's an artificial her with only her likeness that only he knows about really. Like if her loved ones aren't seeing it. I mean, I don't love the idea of it. Does that matter if he's created an idealized version of the wife he grieves? 
that's one. Of- yeah, look, that's a that's a big question, isn't it? And again, something that's touched on in some episodes of, of Black. I keep mentioning Black Mirror, but uh, this show just made me think of it so much. I mean, also made me think of uh, Electric Dreams. Uh, not that there's that many episodes that really deal with artificial reality. Ah, oh, Philip K. Dick again. Yeah. Like- yeah, there's a big question there because, like, what you do in your own head is your own business. And if you want to imagine the you know idealized version of someone who's died still being around, we all do, we all do that for, to some extent. Like I think we've all had conversations with people we've known and loved who have died, and we've we've had those little conversations to ourselves, whether or not we really believe they're listening somewhere else. It helps us to deal with that, and it's something we all do. And this is kind of like a technologically advanced version of that in some ways. But if she's interacting with other people, then that becomes a bit of another question. Like she presumably does have a family out there somewhere, um, or other people that she knew. And what if they find out? Uh, or they think she's still alive and she's not. Like there's not, and maybe it's not even really her. So there's the fact that she's interacting with the world, I think makes this much more problematic than if he was just running a little simulation on his own. But even that could be quite gross if he didn't have her permission. Well, it was like that. That's why I said I could do two hours on this because it's about what right do we have to other people's legacy and what right does an individual have to preserving their own legacy? It taps into all that stuff where they do digital versions of actors after they've died and put them into roles that they personally would never have chosen, even though their family who have never met them because they're two generations away have given the rights. That kind of thing I think is deeply unethical, but it's a spectrum. Like where do you, where do you draw the line on that? Because, um, like, and sorry to be the, doing the thing that people go, oh, it's strangely relevant to this, this text that I've just read by coincidence, but actually just because you recently read it. I recently saw a production of La Traviata, the opera, which is based on a play, which is based on a book, which was based on a real life Parisian courtesan who had died like five years before the opera came out, which I hadn't known. Uh, I vaguely knew the story of it. It's based, it's just the story of a woman who thinks she's recovered from TB, um, falls in love with this guy. The TB comes back and she dies. Spoilers for this opera from 1850. I'm sorry, but you've had your chance, Lister. (laughs) Based on a real woman who died at 23 of TB. And I hadn't really noticed or realized that the guy who wrote the book had had a brief fling with her. Like, um, and then after she died, he immediately wrote this book with the version of her that's fictionalized, but still clearly her that we know that that's what it's based on. And then he made that into a play. Then, um, Verity made that into an opera. And now her legacy is all tied up in these men's stories about her and they're very flattering like they present her in a really good light but also like we don't really know who she was separate to these things so they've absolutely redirected her legacy like she probably would have been completely forgotten but she had no say and there's like a weird thing that even five years after her death people who knew her would have been watching this version of her on the stage and that's just like if you think about anyone you know who's passed away the idea of that happening to them is kind of like horrifying to yeah. me. But now here we are 150, 170 years later, and that's the version of her that's most enduring. So I hope that doesn't feel like too much of tangent, but I think no. in terms of creating new people to put it in, it's a really murky, if not just unambiguously bad territory. I mean, we see it with living people now. Like it's becoming increasingly common to make biopics about people who are not even dead. Like, you know, mm. with the social network with um, Zuckerberg and the team behind Facebook. Yeah, uh, we've seen it in like Pam and Tommy, like the recreation Oof. of like the sex tape, which a lot of people pointed out like that was quite a traumatizing period of her life that they are not like she's not on board with this. She doesn't want them to be making this. Yeah. It's very hypocritical. And yet here, here are people presenting a version of her and her life 
and what happened there while she's still alive and has to deal with people talking about that again. Like, that's a whole other thing as well. So, it's still, still happening. trying to rebuild her career after. Yeah, exactly. So, it's, and, and you know, that's that's happening before people even die without even needing to digitally recreate anybody. Like, people are taking other people's real life stories and, and telling them without permission because there's no there's no legal recourse. Like, it's something that really happened. It was in the public domain. Um, but still, yeah, quite unethical, I think. Anyway, that is it is a huge question that we've probably straight into there. <laughs> that wasn't quite directly what you asked, Craig. But I, I think that's the mark of a good science fiction story is that it provokes these kinds of questions that apply to the real world and makes you think about them. So I think even 30 years on, this story is doing its job. Yes, mm. exactly. The next question comes from Joel Molan via Discord. First parts from me, had Liz read this story before recording the Eek Club segment on personalized VR movie adaptations? I had not. It's just oh, wow. something I think about a lot. More proof of the simulation, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I, I um, want to stress again, I'm joking about that. I don't think that's real. <laughs> but yes, or do you? you? Is that, that just what simulated Ben would say? Yeah. yeah. The simulation hypothesis is the idea that we could all be artificial minds in an advanced computer simulation of human history. It's just a new version of old philosophies where the material world is an illusion. But some people do take it seriously and interpret any kind of coincidence or weirdness as evidence that someone is manipulating the simulation. So, I want to reassure you that the fact you don't remember any previous mention of this in the episode is not evidence of the simulation. The only one editing your reality is me. Uh, but by reality, I mean the podcast. It was a really long digression. I had to cut it. And the next question, this story leaves a lot of room for interpretation for the reader. On your read, did you think this was a happy ending or tragic all the way? I mean, I think it's a mix. Yeah. I think that what happens to them in the real world is tragic and possibly awful. Mm. It's quite nice. I think it, I think there is a, a romantic interpretation that they're living happily ever after. But again, there's that big question mark of did Susanna sign up for this? Or has she been recreated or scanned or uploaded without her permission? We just don't know. Mm. And that makes it hard to really get on board, even if the digital versions of them are fully happy. Mm. But the digital versions are fully happy. Did the ends justify the means? <laughs> Tricky. I mean, I don't think they should be deleted. Yeah. <laughs> like, that would be too much. But I, yeah, I don't know if it's a happy story along the way. Mm. I mm. think it sure is an ending. But, um... Mm. Just just like a lot of things, it's not clear-cut, and that's good. It's like we were saying before, the fact that it raises questions is the mark that it's done a good job, this story. I think a, a large part of it hinges for me on whether you think the cop's interpretation that Susanna died because he was in the machine and couldn't help her when she was having this complication is correct. Which, look, on the balance of it, it seems like... I, I don't understand how that could have happened otherwise, to be honest. I mean, it's the future. You'd hope that they have reasonably good medical care and... You would do something about it rather than nothing. But maybe also he wasn't even at home at the time. We don't know. Like, it was it was after her death that he stopped turning up to the office. So, maybe we just don't have enough information there to know. I think what happened to mm. Michael and Susanna are kind of irrelevant to the question of whether it's a happy ending or not. Because the story oh. is really about our mate Dazza, who, <laughs> who's uh, telling the story. He's getting his own thing out of this story. He... Mm. He's kind of a framing device in lots of ways, but I think he's still revealing something to us about himself in the course of the story. And I think it's a total happy ending for him because he comes out feeling smugly superior. 
And he also feels good for helping people. And I think it's, from his perspective, it's a totally happy ending. And the moral complexities are complex and beyond him because he's not educated. He doesn't really care. Um, he has his little jokes. He has his ways of seeing the world. He's moving along quite happily, thanks. Thanks for listening. You know, and there's so much other stuff in the story that it's so mm. hard to untangle. Good, bad, plus, minus, happy, sad. It's just an ambiguous mess. And uh, I don't know, maybe Darren likes it that way. Because he's the one who's not ambiguous. He sees it clearly in a way that nobody else does. Mm. And he thinks it's a happy ending. He thinks it's romantic. He does. Mm. All right, so our next question comes from Sven by Discord. There are actually two. So the first one is, which totally helpful cyber thingy implant from 1990 would you take instead of your phone? Oh, we didn't really touch on too many of those because, you know, right at the start of the story, Darren says, things in people, I don't like that. And then, or machines in people. And then towards the end, he goes, people in machines, I like that, which is a nice bookend of the story. But the ones that he mentions, like there's the time thing that like projects the time onto your eye right. in your vision. The glitches for him. See, it doesn't work for him, which is interesting. It doesn't work for him. You think that's more evidence that he's in the thing, totally, right? Because yeah. he's special. It, it, the, yeah. the machines don't work on him. Yeah. But they try to upsell him with a version that gives him all the different times. I mean, it's weird, right? Like, why would you not just use your smartphone for these things? <laughs> but there's the one. There's also the targeting one. Oh, like, yeah, Ben, you- Ben, you just became a get off my lawn guy. You know, in 10 years' time, everyone's going to have AR glasses. No one's going to hold phones anymore. And you'll be going, why wouldn't you just be happy with a phone like I was, you young people today? <laughs> I Look, I feel that people who don't have to wear glasses for correcting their vision have a very different idea about AR glasses than people who do. Because I have to wear these glasses all Same. the time. I, I like to be able to put my phone down and do something else for a while, you know? Yeah. I don't want the things I have to wear in order to see the world to have computer stuff projected on them. Um, but no, I, I get what you mean. But there's the targeting system, which seems to be like it's a bit of a, a piss take of the Terminator because it's using the targeting targeting interface to go to the toilet. And miss the toilet seat. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And get all the data from it, which is great. <laughs> I don't know. Would you Would you want any of this stuff? I just love data. I don't know what I'd do with it. I just collect it in <laughs> ways that is... But, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I want a writer ghost, a Sean ghost out there on the internet doing cool stuff. Being cooler than I could ever be because I'm in a meat yeah. sack, you know, that doesn't work <laughs> properly these days. You don't, you don't want any retro 1990s implants, though. Uh, I've, you know, I don't know. Maybe they all sound pretty cool to me. But to try out, I'd want to be able to switch them off though. And yeah, I think that's the key thing, right? They've got to be optional. They've mm. got to be optional. I mean, I'm interested in some applications of augmented reality. The ones I've tried have not been that great, like mm. digital board games that project onto your table. I'm like, this is actually less convenient <laughs> than <laughs> either the the practical board game or the just normal digital equivalent. Yeah. Um. I've never liked those. They're an interesting idea, but they just don't really work. So, yeah, I'm not really sure. If you had that as an implant, though, and everyone's in sync up and you could play a board game without losing any of the pieces or knocking anything over, maybe, mm. maybe. I'd love to play D&D through AR. I think that'd be super cool. That would be cool. If it and properly, VR. You know, that'd be great. There's a few There's a few things that are going that way. You should You should play my game, Sean. Oh. VR, D&D style game. But how do That's I good. find that game, Ben? Uh, you can, it's on Steam. Oh, it's, on, it's Steam. on the PlayStation Network. And what's it called? Ben? It's called uh, Table of Tales, The Crooked Crown I'm, from Tin Man Games. Thank you. I'm going to look that up for sure. 
I was the lead writer. It's very D&D light, like it's a solo game. But it's this is like I think where that technology is fun is that it, it takes it's a computer game interface, but it makes it feel a bit more like a tabletop game by the fact that you use the VR to pick up the pieces and move them around and roll the dice. And oh, cool. um, I think we did a good job, but I would I I wrote it. <laughs> That's fantastic. Anyway, there's a plug. But yeah, if you want a, that style of thing, but there's some other good ones like there's, uh, I think it's called Demios, which is kind of playing D&D, but it's in VR. And there's also a number of like virtual ones that are not VR at the moment, at least like things like Tailspire and stuff that are giving you a 3D environment to put your characters in as you play the game. It's heading that way. I think there's going to be more stuff like that. It's just like so much good potential in VR. And I know that if I got into it, I'd get into the, the stupidest shit. Like that doesn't use it well. Like you remember when Wii Fit was a, was a thing that they tried to push really hard, but no one really went for it. Except you. Well, that I know of. Heaps of people went for it. They okay, sold well, so many of those. Ignoring the truth um, of that. But like, so, you know, when in your simulation. Wii Fit but nobody's got them now. Now they're all like those uh, rowing machines that are under everyone's bed, you know. <laughs> all right. So like, what about like a game where you're in a virtual reality room but it's a big big like big blank space like a gallery Mm. and you have things that are like weights that are virtual reality weights that you pick up but actually like you have to you're just doing a big puzzle and you have to go around and pick up the puzzle pieces and then like walk to the other side of the room to like do your puzzle there is there is a game a little bit not it's not quite that but there's um there's a very sophisticated virtual reality game place in Melbourne and it's free roam virtual reality. So instead of staying in one spot and walking on rollers, like there's a mention in the story that, you know, people can't afford the rollers so they can walk on the spot yeah, and they accidentally they walk out the window when they're exploring the virtual <laughs> environment. Um, but this is like a big room where you're in the VR sets and you've got like a, and, and there's like a zombie shooting one and stuff, but there's also, there's some interesting ones. That I'd like to play. I haven't been there. Oh, Zero Latency, it's called. There's a free plug for them. I haven't been there, so I don't know how great it is. But I've heard about they have one that's a puzzle where you're all in the same simulated environment and you have to manipulate the environment to solve the puzzle. And that includes, like, weird bending of of things. But you're talking about actually physically- Real mundane. Like, the pieces are just all over the floor. you got to go pick one up and you got to go carry it over to a place. The jigsaw puzzle. The one that fits, but they're all like half a meter wide mm. and a bit heavy. So you're also right. exercising while you're doing it. Right. And then you lay it all out. And then once you've done it, you go to a winch and you like winch it up so you can see it on the wall. And oh my God, it's a magic eye. Oh no, you lost me there. I can't see those things. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of pictures on walls, that does kind oh, of segue nicely into yes. our last question, which is also from Sven. Do you want to ask that one, Liz? Yeah, bonus question. If you have the illustration version, what the hell is wrong with that picture? Great question, because I hadn't seen this picture. Um, no, and, and look, <laughs> why why would you have seen it? Because this is from a German collection of Pratchett's short stories called, and I apologize to our German listeners, particularly you, Sven, for my pronunciation. I'm not good at this. The Ganze Wahnsinn uh, is the name of the book, and it has the subtitle Stories, and that translates to All the Madness Stories. But it's not the German version of A Blink of the Screen, and it's not the German version of Once More with Footnotes. It's kind of like another collection of his stories translated into German, and it has illustrations that are not in other editions by everyone's favorite artist on this podcast, Josh Kirby, in his- I feel I felt so mean. Like he's he was a very talented artist. We just not a fan of the style that was his signature style, including the fact that everyone looks quite lumpy. And he has illustrated this story where there's 
I'll try and describe it to you, listener. There's a tiled floor, a big open area. It looks like maybe they're outside the flat or there's just a big window where there's like spaceships flying through the air and a weird landscape. Um, there's weird purple sort of stuff. But there's uh, the suit in the background looking at a machine. There's our guy in the overalls, Darren, who's being accosted by the cop who's like grabbing him. And there's things like flying around and there's things flapping about on the floor. Oh, and I missed the, the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and in the foreground, oh, is- Oh, oh no, it's Susanna in the body bag looking much deader than as described in the novel. It could be Michael in the chair. It could be a recliner chair. And mm. could be. I think, I think there's a, there's like a, oh no, like that's the suit's leg maybe. Mummy-ish, like kind of like a bog body vibe to it though. I reckon it's Susanna. Yeah. I thought it was death at first. I thought it was like a memento mori that Kirby had kind of woven. And then I thought, no, 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 it's completely literal. It's one of the dead bodies. It's probably Susanna. That's him. Is it him grabbing him to sh- show him in the room? Because there is a bit of a, there's not quite a doorway there because of the weird purple stuff. But you know how he kind of mm. was like, come look at this thing and then like points him and that's when he shows him Susanna. Is it like that moment? Oh, it it has a real you're nicked mate kind of it energy does. to it, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's not quite right. Too I much don't... time down at the Jasmine Allen. Oh. Also, like both his feet are like off the ground and he's like, Kind of on the policeman's lap. Yeah, he's being grabbed by the copper who's, like, running. It's a very... Look, this is kind of typical of a lot of Kirby's art where he's read something and he's just gone, I'll just do my own thing with this. The shoes are all wrong. The, it, to answer Sven's question, the shoes are completely wrong. The the <laughs> copper's in, got a blue uniform, but he's got red shoes on with yellow soles. Hmm, that is weird. Our hero of the story, Darren, he's got a red suit on, but he's got yellow shoes on. And I know it matches his yellow belt, but whatever. There's somebody in the background that has yellow pants on and white shoes. It's just all hideous. So from a fashion sense... Are those his pants, though? I don't know what they Yeah, are. when I first looked at it, I thought, are those... Are those uh, Michael's legs in the machine? Yeah. I mean, he's sort of just out of shot, so to speak. But I'm not sure about that. She's all just She's a lot. It's weird. Now, what were you saying about the objects? Because, like, there's he, it's, Darren's, like, the dropping something out of his hand and there's, like, these red flat things on the ground as well. What do we yeah, think is going the on there? Red things. And they've got little symbols on them, but they don't seem to be in any language that I know. Did you did you say like Sean? You think that thing that he's dropping that that's a tongue sleeve potentially? <laughs> it's a that's very gross. uncomfortable looking tongue sleeve. I would not wear that no. in my mouth. Oh, okay. And this looks like a punching thing, but may, like, may, is it like a sort of futuristic gun coming off the cop's belt? Could I feel be. like maybe I've seen a part of this picture before. I have a book of. Because I, cause I was quite nostalgic and I, I, I thought his art was weird and interesting when I started reading Pratchett and I've since gotten a bit over the style. But I, I bought a book of his art and I think this might be in it. I'm going to look it up and see what information I can find about it for the episode notes. I'm not sure, but it's, yeah, it's it's quite something. It's very Kirby. The guy in the background, the suit, has a real master vibe, you know. Oh, yeah. you think? Yeah, and the look on his face too, actually. Oh, yeah. Is there gas a coming out of the cop's shoe, like his left foot? There's like a thing attached to his shoe and then just like a stream of something coming out of it. He's got rocket shoes. Those shoes are weird. <laughs> I thought that was like a used condom or something. Oh, ground, which oh could that be, would be the tongue. That would be, be the, the tongue, tongue sleeve. <laughs> yeah. <Yuck>. Gross. Because <laughs> that's the only, like, well, because there shouldn't be a used condom in that apartment. There shouldn't. But you're right. There's, there's, some, there's some weird smoke stuff going on with uh, Darren's legs as mm. well. Are they motion blurs or something like glitches? Because they're all in a brain. Yes, they're all in Darren's brain. 
And it's not a very uh, good simulation because he's not very good at it. I don't know. <laughs> That's why the outside <laughs> and the inside look like the same place. Because, <laughs> oh, yeah, there's no demarcation between the window and the interior. There's like a cliff inside. Yeah. It looks like a desert world out there. It looks like yeah, dune on Arrakis. And... <laughs> it's a complete yeah. fantasy world. Yeah. But, I mean, that's the sort of thing he likes to draw. Is it a bird? Yeah, it's a bird on the windowsill. A little tiny bird on the cop's left shoulder. Tiny bird. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's weird. Is it on the windowsill or is it off in the distance? Further away. Like a dinosaur. Oh, it's a really small bird. Okay, well, this I feel like this is a weird note to end on. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Certainly a weird note. The Art Appreciation Hour with Pratchett. (laughs) One thing I want to mention we didn't get to. Thank you for sending that to us, by the way, Sven. Sorry. It's, oh, that's it's amazing. Yeah, great. I don't know how I feel about that. Um, <laughs> but we, we did mention to his coy mistress earlier. And one thing I want to throw out there for you to have a look at, and we'll link to this in the episode notes as well, is that Pratchett wrote his own poem, which was clearly inspired by it, called An Ode to Multiple Universes, which was first published in 2015 in a magazine and then later republished in The Folio, which is just a, a little green hardcover book with some of Pratchett's previously uncollected stuff in it that was given out at a couple of conventions, the Discworld Convention in the UK and the Australian one uh, in 2014-2015. And that has since been printed online. And it's um, it's a little bit of sweet reading it now after his death, but it is a cute little poem. It's lovely. I loved it. The last thing I want to say, too, is that I had a question for myself which was, does this title make sense? <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Because I've got a bit of a programming background from way back in my university days. And it does kind of like, if def is a real thing, it's a directive that checks if a term is defined in the program. Basically, have you said that this is a thing? And debug in all caps is often used as one that you define when you want to compile the program in a way that will give you extra information about what it's doing so you can figure out where it's going wrong. So that is legit. The title does not really make sense in total as a computer program directive, but it's made of bits that make sense. Yeah. And that's what you yeah. want in science fiction, right? Bits and bobs yeah. that make sense. Just mash exactly. things together and hope that the readers will fill up the gaps in their brains, in their simulations. Yeah. Uh, look, that really brings us to the end. Sean, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I think it's been an absolute blast. It's been lovely joining you on your fantastic podcast. And what a fantastic opportunity to read a piece of Cherry Pratchett's work that I'd never read before. And from something so long ago, too. It's like discovering a, a box in an attic of all your grandpa's old war medals or something. His old, his old used tongue sleeves. Let's go with that. Oh, <laughs> gross. No. His unused tongue sleeves. I don't want to discover his used ones. That would no, be gross. Oh, but it's been there. Un- sorry, it's, it's just it's just been really great. What a marvelous adventure! Now, if people want to get into your work, Sean, if people are into Terry Pratchett, is there one of your? Because you've written a lot. You've got like fifty novels, and who knows how many short stories? I mean, presumably you know how many short stories. Uh, I lost count. Like one hundred and fifty or something, something as I'm like guessing. Yeah. Is it around that number? Yeah, something. something yeah. There. But if there's one as an entry point into your work that you would recommend to people who enjoy Terry Pratchett, is there one that you think would be a good crossover point for people? Totally, I reckon. And until a year or two ago, I would have said nothing. I, I have nothing in common with Terry Pratchett. But I, I did write a little book called Her Perilous Mansion that came out just at the beginning of the lockdown. It's about a couple of kids who are trapped in a house and can't get out. So it's it's um, it's kind of unintentionally appropriate for the time. So I, that that book was really inspired by uh, Dinah Wynne Jones amongst other authors, and there are little Pratchett Pratchetty kind of touches in there. So there's that, and I have a sort of a side call coming out called Honor Among Ghosts, 
uh, later this year. So I reckon that would be the place to go. Great. Okay. And we'll we'll have a link to your website so people can find you. Well, I better update it. Eek. If they want to get into your music, because we only touched on this very briefly, you're not just an author, you're also a musician, and you've been releasing a lot more music the last few years as well. Uh, where do we find out about that? So if you go to my musical moniker is The Adelaidean, and I chose The Adelaidean because I live in Adelaide and also because the tallest building in Adelaide is called The Adelaidean. And I thought they were going to put a big sign on top saying The Adelaidean. I thought that's that's like free advertising, right? And they hadn't taken the website, the URL. So I've got theadelaidean.com, <laughs> but they didn't have a sign on it. It's got some some other stupid name. Stupid name. So anyway, mm. my yeah, go to theadelaidean.com. I do really ambient music. I've got an album out called Eternity Is next month, which is on theme for this story, I think. You know, what is it? Good soundtrack. Yeah, if you're reading right. it. Yeah. 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 Great. Well, look, thank you again so much for joining us. And maybe maybe we'll get you back again at another time. This has been really great fun. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'd come back anytime. Before we go, this is a couple of things we'd like to tell you, listener. One of which is there's a cool thing coming up that you probably want to know about if you're a Discworld fan. Nullus Anxietis, the Australian Discworld convention. And we mentioned one of their previous conventions earlier as one of the places they were giving out that book. Um, they're not giving out any of those books. They're very hard to find now. If you can find one, hang on to it. Uh, but they're having a, an online fun day. It's happening on June the 18th, so only a little bit of time after this. You can find out all the details by going to ozdwcon.org slash fun dash day. I feel like I'm reading out the title of the story again. That's my birthday. <laughs> is that your birthday? Yes, That's a present, isn't it? Yeah. Well, we're going to be involved probably in a pre-recorded way, but I'm hoping to be there at the day anyway. So, And there's lots of fun stuff happening. There's cool discussions. We won't spoil what we're talking about because I think it's going to be a nice surprise. Um, and I'm very excited for when we get to get together and talk about that, Liz. But yes, do check that out. We'll have a link in our episode notes so you can find out more. And thank you also to all of you just for listening. To those of you who uh, have told friends about the podcast, who support us that way or who subscribe, thank you so much. You make it possible for us to do this. And we are eternally always grateful. And speaking of subscribers, we do have an important bit of news, which is that we are changing the platform we use for our subscription service. You should have received a message in the first days of June about that. If you haven't seen that, don't worry, we'll be following it up. But there are some instructions you need to follow to cancel your old subscription and start up a new one if you'd like to keep supporting us, which we hope you do. And if you're thinking of supporting us for the first time, you can just jump on with the new service, which is coffee. We should turn our eyes to the next episode, Liz, because we're sticking with the sci-fi theme, aren't mm. we? And it's not too long away now um, that we do The Long Mars. Oh, we're going back to the world of the long earth. I'm quite fascinated about this because I feel like it's a ballsy move to go, we're going to write a series about the fact that there's an infinite number of Earths and then we're going to leave Earth. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to go and look at another planet. So I think that's going to be quite fascinating. But the groundwork's been laid. And you can check out our previous episodes about the first two books in the series, if you haven't read them, The Long Earth and The Long War. And we're very happy to be welcoming back previous guest Joel Martin to talk about this book. Um, so that's our book for Pratchett 57, which is also the hashtag that you can use if you want to send us in questions about that. We'd love to hear them. Thank you again for joining us. And until next time, please remember to clean your valves. You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Sean Williams. 
Pratchat is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via PratchatPodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat56. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrors. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.